0: I trust you're having a great day, another beautiful day here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, you may have heard a lot in recent days about research being conducted related to hereditary eye disease linked to certain areas of the province. Some 650 people have been identified as part of a cluster of incidents of rare eye disease that can rob the sight of those affected. Fighting Blindness Canada recently held a fundraising ride on the Avalon Peninsula, and we heard from President and CEO of Fighting Blindness Canada Doug Earl who's been singing the praises of local researcher Dr. Jane Green whose work helped to identify the unique cluster and is giving hope to those who may be carrying the gene. Well my guest today is none other than Dr. Jane Green professor emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine. Hello. Hello. Well, i very pleased to be here. And I'm so happy that you've uh, been able to join us as well. Well you're retired but your work continues How did you get started in this particular line of research?
1: Originally, I lived in Vancouver and went to the University of British Columbia and did my bachelor and master's degree. And David Suzuki was just just arrived at the time. And so I did genetics as my master's degree research. My husband's a marine biologist and when he finished his PhD, got a position here at the Marine Lab, which was new. So we came to Newfoundland. And I had learned a lot of genetics in the two years uh, by going to many meetings and so on. And so um, I was hoping to start again. Our children were small and um, in, I think it was 1978, uh, Dr. Gordon Johnson who was an ophthalmologist and he'd been in San Anthony and so on but he started a clinic at Eastern Health and we joined together to have a hereditary eye disease clinic and so that was once a week and we the families would come he would examine I would do some other testing and I would take the family history. And from then, uh, since many people still lived in their home communities and didn't necessarily have a way to travel to St. John's for appointments, we started having rural clinics in the areas where we were where we knew there were other family members affected.
0: That's fascinating. So when you and Dr. Johnson uh, put together this hereditary eye disease clinic, were you aware of uh, certain incidents in in the area or were you
1: hoping to find that? We knew that there were some. Um, Dr. Johnson had... um, being the person that CNIB referred patients to when they had reduced vision, but not a definite diagnosis. And he had realized um, that certainly some of them had types of retinal dystrophy, RP, for instance, and also albinism and different things. So we knew that there were some patients, we didn't necessarily know how many.
0: So, but you soon found out.
1: Yes, yes. And the thing was that when there's an individual with a hereditary eye disease, there are different needs than the situation with somebody with an age-related macular degeneration or glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy, which tend to start later. Many of the hereditary eye diseases um, begin at an early age, so they affect schooling and employment and so on. Um, And if one person is affected with a hereditary eye disease, then others in the family might be affected as well. so that was why it was particularly important to see other family members.
0: And soon you started to, I guess, got into the world of, you said you were already into um, genetics, but you got into the world, I suppose, inadvertently of genealogy as well.
1: Well, yes, genetics, genetics, um, requires an understanding of family history. Now, in genetics, you usually say family history rather than genealogy, but yes, it's the same thing. So um, if you can understand how people are related, you can maybe, or how the parents may or may not have been related, you can understand how a condition might occur within a family, and if other people are at risk and should be tested. And you can also then talk to people about the possibility of others affected, for instance, siblings or children being diagnosed in the future. And this is valuable to families to know this information.
0: Are there hereditary, sorry, hereditary patterns that you watch for? Are there specific sort of patterns
1: that you you can see how these things progress? Yes, there. In anything genetics, there are um, specific patterns. Genes are always in pairs. The chromosome where the genes are are in pairs, and so for any condition, you would have two copies of the gene, except the X-linked. Um, but. In some cases, an altered gene, and an altered gene is called a mutation, a gene has a normal um, function in the body, whether it's the eye or the muscles or the heart. And most of the time, most of our genes are working completely normally, but sometimes a gene is altered, and if it's one that functions in the eye, then it can cause A hereditary eye disease sometimes you need both genes the gene on each of the chromosomes for the uh, condition to express itself and that's called a recessive condition so you would have inherited one mutation from mother and one from father some other conditions, the mutation has a stronger effect, and so that just one mutation on one chromosome is enough to cause the condition, and that's inherited in a different way in the family. It's from parent to the next generation, and then that means that the subsequent generation has a 50% risk of being affected. Recessive conditions tend to be more in si- siblings, brothers and sisters, cousins, and may- maybe um, you know more extended family members. Then there's the conditions which are called X-linked. One X chromosome. Um, women have two X chromosomes. One men have. A Y chromosome which determines the male situation but the X chromosome could also have a mutation to do with a hereditary eye disease and in those conditions there tend to be far more males affected than women and there's a there's another Pattern of inheritance. So if you see one young man with RP, it could be that he has recessive and has had inherited a mutation from each parent. It could be dominant. Now, it might have been present in a parent and not recognized as such, or it might be a new dominant mutation, or it could be excellent. So this is what keeps geneticists busy trying to work out, and this is why you take as much family history as possible to see if the condition has occurred in other family members and what's the pattern.
0: You sometimes hear people mention, you know, it's skipped a generation. And I assume that that's a a recessive type of um, uh, dominance there. In other words, somebody is a carrier, but they don't develop the illness unless there is that second gene
1: yes and and so then it's not just skips a generation it usually hasn't occurred and then it it does even in the dominant type where it normally is seen in generation after generation there are interactions with other genes there's there's many different genes that are involved in the function of the eye. And if there's a mutation in one, there are all of these other genes and sometimes there might be a situation where another gene that you have, which is working well, in a sense takes over for the one that's mutated, so makes it less of a problem. So um, this this is very complicated, but there are situations where somebody can have the mutation and not have the same extent of the problem as somebody else in the family.
0: So that's a little bit of backgrounder. When we come back after the break, I want to talk to you uh, more specifically about what you have discovered—the both the hereditary eye uh, diseases and the cancers that you've subsequently identified. When we come back after the break, my guest today on On Target is Professor Emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine, Dr. Jane Green. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday. Afternoons at one on your V O C M, and our guest today is Dr. Jane Green, Professor Emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine, and someone who has been working uh, for decades now on hereditary eye diseases and hereditary cancers in Newfoundland and Labrador, and has uh, made some real progress in identifying uh, clusters of certain illnesses. Uh, Dr. Jane Green, um, what did your what has your research found?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing has been to do with the hereditary cancers. Um, One day at the eye clinic, some sisters um, were referred. Two of them had uh, decreased vision that had been quite sudden onset. And what Dr. Johnson noted when he examined them was that they had a A blood vessel tumor on the back of the eye called a retinal angioma, and this had caused a retinal detachment and sudden loss of vision in two of these sisters. Now, Dr. Johnson knew that that could be seen as part of a hereditary condition called von Hippel-Lindau disease or VHL. After the clinic, I went immediately to the library to read everything I could about VHL. But I had taken a history and found out that another brother in Toronto had also had vision loss. Their father had died of a brain tumour. And um, a cousin had died at a young age um, because of a hypertensive crisis, crisis, sudden blood pressure um, being raised. And that was from a adrenal gland tumor that was associated so VHL can have all of these types of tumors if the mutation is there somebody is at risk for these many types of tumors and it might be different in different brothers and sisters but I reviewed records to find out what types of tumors there had been, what age they had been, and then I talked to different physicians at Eastern Health about how you could find those different types of uh, tumors early. An eye appointment was one part for the retinal angiomas. At the time, there was just ultrasound and then CT and later MRI that could be used to look for the tumors within the body, such as in the kidney or in the adrenal glands or also in the brain. And so I set up a screening program with the test to be done and the starting at the necessary age to get the tumors at the earliest Possible time, then those individuals could be seen by the physicians, often surgeons, in order to have treatment early. And uh, working with VHL then led to other hereditary cancers called multiple endocrine neoplasia type one and also MEN2 and then the colon cancers um, because people knew that some families had several people with colon cancer and often at a young age. And that's what you see with these hereditary conditions that they, the type of tumor may also occur in the general population but in the hereditary form is often earlier and so more significant. So there was a family on the northeast coast um, where there was an individual in the hospital and he had his second colon cancer and he gave me a lot of family history, introduced me to other relatives in his area and I went out to talked to people about the family history and about the screenings that it was recommended to have a colonoscopy if you were in one of those families to look for the early stage of a tumor so there could be treatment before cancer had spread. With reviewing records I found that some of the women who said, oh, yes, they'd had abdominal surgery as well, but some of them had had endometrial cancer, cancer of the womb, and that turned out to be another type of cancer that this same condition um, could cause. And so the Newfoundland families, because of being very large, helped to the understanding of the types of tumors in the condition but also was key to finding the gene. In those days in the early 1990s you couldn't just sequence DNA like reading a book and find the mistake. It was known that DNA uh, was the the substance where the mutations were, but it was as if you had a dictionary in German and somebody said there's a word spelled wrong on one of the pages. And you had to just go page after page after page looking for this mistake. It was something like that with the DNA at the time. And you really needed a very large family. And so the Newfoundland family, I was at a particular meeting at Bar Harbor one summer, and they were talking about wanting to find the gene for HNPCC. Um, People The molecular specialists were at Johns Hopkins University, and I drew out the parts of the pedigree from the Newfoundland family, and they said this would be the family if we can get DNA samples from many, many people. And I went back to the family members, and all were very willing and collected samples. They were sent to Hopkins, and they found the gene, which is called MSH2, and this meant immediately, it meant there was genetic testing for the large Newfoundland family, and there were then other similar families in in Newfoundland identified, but it also meant that families all around the world with HNPCC could have studies done to find the the mutation in that gene, it might be a different mutation in a family that was in Calgary or in Chicago or London, England and so on, but at least they knew a gene to look. And then the thing was to keep organizing the clinical screening Um Offer the genetic testing. Those who had the mutation then had a series of tests every one or two years to find the the colon cancer or the endometrial cancer or subsequently some other cancers. So that's the, so was that,
0: the main thing. It's it, no doubt, and, you know, hearing how how it all
1: evolved, it had to have saved lives it saved many lives that was um yes there was a research component that you know it's nice to to know that you found something new but as far as I'm concerned the critical thing was that people knew that there were was more cancer in their family than other families but now there's a way to do something you offered the colonoscopy, you offered what was called endometrial biopsies, and then subsequently there were other types of tests that um, could be offered as well. But if you could find a cancer early or even a tumor that hadn't actually become cancerous yet and it could be removed, then you didn't have that... Um, burden over your head and you could go on and continue with your screening in case there was something else. So it's made a tremendous amount of difference.
0: And I want to ask you a little bit about uh, how you determined the timing and the frequency of screening when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Dr. Jane Green, Professor Emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine. She's explaining uh, her um, decades of work um, into research into uh, certain genetic or hereditary cancers and eye diseases. We'll be back right after this. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And we're back. My guest today on On Target is Dr. Jane Green, Professor Emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine and she's been outlining some of the research work that she, she's done over the decades um, in helping to identify certain hereditary illnesses including uh, certain types of uh, cancers so uh, that's helped you to determine um, screening programs or to establish screening programs. How do you um, decide when is the best time to start screening if a family member has been is identified as part of one of these clusters and, and the frequency of that screening?
1: Well, the thing was that I always requested consent from individuals in the family to review the records. And I recorded the age at which anyone was who'd had a cancer in the past. And initially, we thought it was just colon cancer, but when I saw the records, as I mentioned before, some of the women had actually had endometrial cancer instead of or before a colon cancer. And so I knew that that was part of the risk as well. And I recommended the screening to be about two years before the earliest age that the particular type of tumor had been recorded. But then I kept track. And so if some of those, so let's say I said age 35 for the colon screening and the endometrial screening. If some individuals had a tumor or a precancer at that age, then I realized that the screening must move to an even earlier time period. So it was the fact of having a database and keeping all of the information on the timing of screen- age of screening and when any tumors were found. And so the screening and the different conditions moved to younger ages over time as we found tumors at, at a certain screening age.
0: And. Being someone who has one of these genes identified within them, I guess that not only do they have to be involved in the screening, as you've pointed out, but sometimes they have to make some difficult difficult personal choices. Sometimes they have to consider, well, am I going to take the proactive approach and, and have a hysterectomy? Am I going to have a mastectomy? Am I going to have my stomach removed?
1: It, that, that's true, and those are things that... Um, When geneticists are involved with these different families, a a hereditary colon cancer, hereditary breast cancer, or hereditary stomach cancer family, these are the discussions that they have. And the geneticists work with the other physicians, such as the surgeons. And if the surgeons say that there's been quite large tumors already identified at the age that we thought was a good age for starting screening, then the screening had to be at an earlier stage. And as I'd mentioned, it was originally thought to be just hereditary colon cancer, but when we found that some of the women had endometrial and then later also ovarian cancer was seen to occur in this this hereditary what had been called hereditary colon cancer family. So you were adding the different types of screening as you gained more information, and that was really from continuously reviewing records of members of the families. And it was the same thing with the other conditions, such as the multiple endocrine neoplasias it's a different set of tumors but it was the same idea you had to know what could occur when they'd occurred in the past and then put the screening in place and at the very beginning with um some of these conditions ultrasound was the best examination for looking in in the interior of the body and so that's what was recommended But as CT scan became available, it gave much more information, and so the screening was changed, and later to MRI. And there, um, as there are new types of investigations possible, there could be changes again. So it's a question of keeping track of the family, what's found in screening, or what Tumors have been removed, and what medical investigations are available to be used.
0: So, in that, have you have you noticed uh, certain um, further mutations or, or or progress in those mutations?
1: Well, yes. I mean, the that one large family, it was you know thought to be colon cancer, and that's what the condition was called. But very quickly, we saw the endometrial cancer as a possibility, and then ovarian cancer. There have been some people with pancreatic cancer that we've seen. Um, it's it's not as common, but that can also occur. And certainly with the other hereditary conditions, it, it's ne- being necessarily necessary also to to keep track of the tumors and expand the screening. And this is where in Newfoundland, because the family size is large, if you only have two or three people affected with a particular condition, there may not be a great deal of variation or extent of disease in that few people. But if you have 50 people Affected with the condition it you have a greater chance of identifying what are the other possible risks and this information is certainly valuable to the families here but it's reported in the literature and at meetings and so on and so people elsewhere who have smaller uh, family size can benefit from the information learned from the families here and have the right screening approach for their families, even though their family wasn't big enough to identify it on its own.
0: Our guest today on On Target is uh, Dr. Jane Green, Professor Emeritus with the. Faculty of Medicine at Memorial Ah. University. She's been talking a bit about her research. And uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about some of the other uh, genetic diseases that have been identified in Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, are helping people around the world when we come back right after this. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Our guest today is Dr. Jane Green, Professor Emeritus with Memorial University Faculty of Medicine, who has uh, dedicated her life's work to uh, researching and identifying some of these uh, hereditary illnesses that have had devastating impacts on families across Newfoundland and Labrador, but uh, through her work, uh, people have been, uh, their lives have been saved. And uh, I'm looking at a map now, Dr. Green, of certain regions of the province where certain hereditary illnesses have been identified, and we've spoken before on this show about ARVC and some of the amazing work being done at Memorial University in helping to identify that uh, terrible uh, illness, uh, basically a sudden cardiac arrest in young people. Um, So there's other illnesses as well. And when we're talking about families, by the looks of this, we're really
1: talking about communities. Yes. Just historically, when people came to Newfoundland, this is maybe 200 and 300 years ago, they came by boat. They settled in an inlet or cove that looked like a suitable place to live and to be able to fish from. But another um, family or group of individuals would settle in another location further along the coastline, possibly near nearby. Now, sometimes there might be several brothers who um, settled in uh, coves near each other and so that little area would be would have some family connections but then another few miles along the way it would be somebody else and maybe it was somebody from Ireland and so there were clusters of people who were related and then very close there could be somebody who who wasn't related but you you do see um these these patterns and I just wanted to make um, a bit more mention of the hereditary eye diseases because they're, so far there isn't treatment to cure them, but they're still, it's still very important to recognize them. Many of them start at a young age and so there can be significant problems with schooling I know in the old days when it was just what was written on the board and if you couldn't see the board and you couldn't read the books then you just couldn't learn the information now if somebody's recognized to have an early vision loss they are provided with the technology the um, computers and so on, maybe even earlier than others in the schools, because that's the only way they can read the material. But the early onset makes such a difference in education and planning for future employment that it's it's very important to to recognize. There are some attempts elsewhere to actually treat some of these hereditary eye diseases, but this is a very difficult procedure, and each each hereditary eye disease caused by a different gene mutation would have to be treated in its own way and so this is some of the future but in the meantime it's important that people are recognized that they get the special help in schooling and planning for employment you're a researcher Uh, you deal with uh, data and facts
0: and information and research and the rest of it Uh, but you must get to know uh, these families and over generations as well what's that like
1: It's it's been very interesting, and this is where traveling, and I've been on almost every road in the province, um, particularly in a few years back when you went, often people would say, well, you must speak to my grandparents. They're in the White House down the road. Now, every house would be white, but they'd tell me which one. And the grandparents would often know history well back in in their area, and this was helpful helpful, and they would maybe know that Billy had an eye problem because he always had difficulty with the fishing and so on. So they could tell me information, and that would help me work out the the history in in these conditions. But nowadays so many people, if you have a vision loss, then you can't drive. Um, I know one young man wanted to be a social worker. He would have been an ideal social worker, but in Newfoundland, you have to drive to your clients. And so he was not able to do that, and he had to redirect um, his his planning. It's necessary to help people with these plans. And I'm on the weekend. There was the ride for the site from um, the Fighting Blindness Canada and. I didn't ride, but I did attend, and I talked to many people um, there that I've known over the years, and heard how they have done, what they're doing now, and some of them have no vision at all and may even be, for instance, a lawyer, um, a businessman, work in Department of Health and, and so on. And I'm so pleased to see that people where it looked like there wasn't any hope for good employment 30, 40 years ago, and now they've done very well and and sort of show others what can be done. We have to make sure that the Department of Health and the Department of Education provides special help for those with decreased vision in order to succeed. So you're retired,
0: I guess, officially,
1: (laughs) but your work continues.
0: We've only got uh, a little over a minute left.
1: Yes, my work continues. I I think... What I have to think about, I'm very pleased to see how life is improved for people in hereditary cancer families and even how some of the people with hereditary eye disease have been able to do far more than people thought was possible before. But I also, it has been wonderful to go to tour the province admittedly i was going to do a, a job to do research but i've seen tremendous amounts of the province i've talked to wonderful people in their homes and particularly the older generations so i've learned what life was like in, in the past when people lived on the islands, lived in isolated coves, and um, worked and, and provided wonderful living for their f- families. And, and this has been a reward to me to know so many people from around the province. Well, Dr. Jane
0: Green, thank you very much for the work that you do. Um, We've really enjoyed this conversation today. Uh, Once again, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for asking me.
0: And we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.